everybody. This is Keach Rainwater with the Designated Drummer Podcast, and I'm sitting here at the Band Cave, the infamous Band Cave, with a good friend of mine from a long time ago, David Northrup. How's it going? Good, man. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. You bet, man. And so, uh, for those that don't know, David Northrup, man, I mean, you started out kind of in the 90s, in the early 90s, but you have, in your career, you have played with people like Pam Tillis and Travis Tritt for a long time, the mm-hmm. Oak Ridge Boys, and it just goes on and on. The list goes on and on. Lee Greenwood. Yeah, And, man, you're just a, you're a powerhouse <laughs> of your... I, I always joke, I can't keep a job. <laughs> no. You just get too many. It's like... The difference between I can't keep a job or I just got so many I can't decide on one. You yeah, know? I've just been really fortunate to to have had those opportunities to move in and out of certain gigs and uh, experience playing with some of the folks that I've always really admired their music. You know, so right. it's been it's been a it's been a fun ride. How do you um, say you're going from say like Lee Greenwood to the Oak Ridge Boys? That is two completely different kinds of music, you know, or Travis Tritt to, to Pam Tillis. Mm-hmm. How do you, in your mind, how do you, I know obviously you, you try to play it like the record and all that, but is there a different kind of a mindset that you switch gears sort of like when you go from one gig to another? I, or are you just yourself? Well, there's that. I mean, I, I do it the way that I, I do it, but I also try to envision uh, the dynamic of the artist, you yeah. know, personality-wise, if you think in terms of, uh, Travis's background and Travis's music is, or was when I played with him, is very much influenced by Southern rock. Yeah, right. You know, and then the blues. He had a, a, a you know very eclectic background. So along with learning the material from the record, right? You know, um, and kind of giving it my own flair. Um, just I, I tried to play a certain type of personality that would fit his music right you know and pam is uh, was a a totally different dynamic altogether and in a literal sense musically dynamically it was it was definitely a a a definite departure from what travis was like but that definitely comes down to like i had mentioned spending time uh listening to the original material right and kind of seeing where uh, a lot of what they're doing live where the the origin of that is you yeah know? and that sort of helps with the uh, i guess moving from one different gig to to, to the other actually yeah. you know, doing a little bit of studying you know yeah. that would just be such an interesting uh sort of gear change uh sea change and sort of a feel is going from someone like travis tritt to pam tillis let's say yeah and like your kit would almost have to change a little bit maybe because of the instrumentation might be on the album might be yeah. a little, and you're trying to serve the song right sure without a doubt so, or are uh, you trying to serve the show are you trying to put on a show or are you trying to serve the song or i think it, it's a combination of both uh a great example of that was uh, i went from the oakridge boys to play with boss skaggs and, uh, I read that that you yeah. played with that you played with Boss Gags. What a, that that would just been like. Yeah, it was it was an amazing uh, opportunity, but it was also very challenging in that Boz was very specific on the way he wanted the drums to sound. Yeah, you know, it was very everything. You mean was, like live, or you mean like in the beginning uh, in the studio in the li- it, yeah, live for his live show. Everything was was catered towards that 1970s Silk Degrees album that Picaro played on. Yeah, right. So. You know, the drums had to be real dead. So he wanted to sort of 
recreate that feel, yeah. sound, texture. Yeah, and, and with the oaks, they gave me a lot of freedom. You know, uh, they as long as you you honored the parts to a certain degree, they didn't really care if right. if you wanted to make it a little bit more contemporary. So said, you know, yeah. my drums were you know, all wide open, um, very little muting you know i worked hard on keeping them in tune and stuff but i just love you know big wide open yeah. drum sounds like and on the oom papa oom papa the tom thing yeah did you, did you go crazy on that or uh, did you well, did you have to keep that kind of boom, i i, I honor that do, 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 you know do. because that's yeah. what people would want to hear and yeah. anything else would be a little bit more self-indulgent i'm sure right. they would have let me they would have humored me but yeah but no i i kept it pretty much the, the way it should have been yeah but uh, with with the Bosgi, I, I had to change the head combination that I would normally use. You oh know, right, yeah, because you know. Picaro had sort of some high toms a little bit. Yeah, he had high or toms. Had a lot of toms. I don't know what. And and they were real dead. I mean, yeah. I don't I don't even know if they were constant toms or toms that didn't have you know the bottom heads. Yeah. But they were definitely that uh, that stock 1970s real thuddy quick no two heads kind of thing yeah kind of thing so that was that's what he he called for so that was a big uh change for me it was a challenge did you have to go out and buy a new kit or something no i i used my gretsch kit but i uh, but i did change uh my head combination i'm an evans guy so i was used to using like a g1 clear on the bottom Mm -hmm. and then maybe a g2 uh clear or maybe a, a g1 coated mm-hmm. you know and then with boz i had to use what uh what evans's evans's heads are, are kind of similar to the pinstripe heads they have right. a thing called an ec2 mm-hmm. which i used on the top and then an, an ec resonant yeah which is for the bottom head which had like a you know a little control so what was the result that you would get from that just a they, just warmer a, softer they a, a quick muting not not a long sustain you I know understand. so you yeah. got a lot of attack and punch and roundness depending on how yeah. you tuned them but there wasn't a lot of ring did it, you put some moon gels on there or anything i like did that? yeah i did yeah. as well so you know um one of the things that i found interesting is after having the gig for a while and changing heads on occasion when i would put new heads on and i didn't have them dampened mm-hmm. i could hear the difference it was it was like a, i couldn't imagine the songs or the sound of my drums being any other way i see yeah. at that point you know right. so so it, it 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 made a lot of sense to me you know to yeah. to have had my drums sound the way that i normally would have had them didn't really suit the music yeah you know you know one thing i always liked about picaro and what he would do is in relationship to tom fills and things like that is that of course he was an awesome drummer uh, all around but i mean the way he would do fills is the dynamics between the notes of the fills like he would go or oh yeah like he would change the dynamics during the fill sure like on rosanna and stuff like that absolutely i love the way he did that yeah yeah so cool did you did you you probably picked up on that, and did you play it like that on the? Oh yeah. Did you play like him on? Yeah, on the stuff abso- that you absolutely. Like? I I honored as much as I could, you know. And and we that gig, you know, you were given some freedom, but um, I had seen Boz play ten years before I got the gig. I saw yeah. him live, and uh, all the musicians were great, and the drummer was fantastic. But when I left the show, I was a little disappointed that there was some of those signature fills that were I mean, he didn't play them yeah you know and, and, and i always 
I always looked at some of those as being as important as like a, a signature guitar lift or the lyrics themselves or yeah. something yeah because yeah. you're used to hearing that yeah and so, it was just you know so on dirty low down did you you know that double hi-hat thing that mm-hmm. goes on how did you uh, address I, I, that i played i played 16th yeah. two-handed 16th on one hi-hat did you on, try one, to... on one hi-hat and in in uh in the past he uh boz had had uh, a percussionist yeah right uh, but when i was there there wasn't a percussionist but when he had, he had had a percussionist he would have the percussionist plays 16ths on a yeah, hi-hat and, the, and then yeah. the, and then the, the kid drummer would it, play just eighths the first take mm-hmm. of of the dirty low down is just is not 16ths no you can hear on different straight, hi-hat in there but if you really listen to it it's sticked straight yeah and then the the 16th is kind of on there but they open intermittently mm-hmm. you know like like yeah. as if they're both doing it but yeah, and there's cool. uh there's two bass parts too hungate overdubbed a, a slap part. right i yeah. didn't the slap yeah. was overdubbed yeah yeah. yeah, so it was pretty cool. It was interesting having to to be able to do, you know. Yeah, it, and it made sense. Obviously, the, you couldn't you could not do the sixteenth notes. You had to have yeah. that that sort of motion thing going on. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid in in seventy six or whenever that song came out seventy five seventy six. Uh, I hated that slap bass part. I thought oh, yeah? that was I was about thirteen or fourteen or something like that, and uh, starting to really pick out parts and listen to drums and music and things like that. And I used to hate that 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 little slap part in there. <laughs> no kidding. And I was just like, oh god, that just sounds. Why did they do that? Why are they slapping the bass like that? And of course, years later, it became like uh, you know the thumb thing, yeah. the, the playing notes on the thumb and slapping. Sure, it got more tasteful as yeah. time went by. I'll say. Chuck Rainey and Marcus yeah. Miller kind of took yeah. it to a different level. Exactly. Yeah. But back then, I didn't know. It was kind of new to me, you know. Yeah. I don't remember hearing it very much, and I remember thinking, like, why are they slapping the bass like that? It sounds a burl, you know. <laughs> <laughs> of course, now I listen to it. it Live and learn, amazing, I guess, and then yeah. your your tastes change, I guess. Yeah, and, right. Yeah, that's pretty funny. So you, um, I got a big question for you. So you started out in New York, mid mm-hmm. middle New York, and then you came to Nashville by way of Florida. I mean, yeah. I, my question would be is like, uh, what what was it in Florida that attracted you there, and why didn't you just come straight to Nashville? Uh, in the mid, the early nineties, right? Yeah. Um, you, I was, you know, single and very young and, uh, I was studying music in New York with some great premier, uh, drummers in the area and there just wasn't as many opportunities. Um, now when you say study with, you mean like other students or teachers? Like teachers, professors? teachers. Yeah. There was a yeah. guy named Wilby Fletcher that I was taking lessons with great jazz drummer. Uh, prior to him, there was a guy named Frank Briggs who uh, ended up going to L.A. I studied with him. And then there was a, another great teacher I, I studied with named John Dixon. And so, um, you know, I was in the area late teens, early 20s. And what I really needed was to play as much yeah, as possible. Right. And, you know, it was a small scene and there was a lot of really established older drummers and this so, is in mid central new york yeah right? central so syracuse area syracuse okay so i had the opportunity to go to florida my brother had a, a summer place down there and uh when he closed on it i drove down with him and yeah. brought some of his stuff and stayed with stayed with him for for a, a few weeks and i thought why am i in From, new york i know weather wise yeah I mean, it's like new york yeah or florida and let, was, me, gee, you know, let me think clantily dressed young <laughs> people on the beaches uh, of and, course yeah and there was just uh, you know an opportunity to play year-round just because of the weather tourists you know and whatnot so i went back to new york and packed up my things and, and 
made the move down there. Yeah. yeah, and I I just had an opportunity to play a lot yeah. more. You know, there were uh, a top forty bands that played. And Joel Sonnier, you uh, you kind of got started with him, didn't you? I did when I when Cajun I drummer, yeah, I mean, when Cajun I Cajun musician. When I moved to Nashville, uh, I connected with him. I was doing some sessions at a guy named Randy Coleman's house. I believe that's how it worked. Actually, you know how that worked? Steve Eby. You remember Steve Eby? I know the name. Yes, great guy, great drummer. Um, Teaches at Forks. Has been teaching there for a long time. Um, I had connected with him somehow. I I met him and and got tight with him. For those uh, that don't know, Forks uh, Drum Closet is the sort of preeminent sort of like drum store here in Nashville. Yeah. Now there might be others and I don't want to I don't want to put down those other ones, but that seems to be for uh, years I've been going to Forks yeah, Drum Closet. A, just a staple um, here. Everybody. So you can learn, you can buy gear, mm-hmm. you can even rent stuff, I think. If, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. But uh I, I I believe I met Steve through Forks or I can't remember how. But anyways he he recommended me to Joel. Right? And so Joel called me up one day and asked me if I wanted to uh, get together and I did. I got together with him for a five-hour audition. Wow. It was just him and I. Oh, okay. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, so that was a great experience because I've always always liked, you know, music, ethnic ethnic music. And he plays fiddle, right? Uh, Accordion. Accordion. So it was accordion and drums. That was for five hours of accordion and drums. And he wasn't (laughs) even sure if he still wanted me after five hours. Is that right? Yeah, his wife came home and said, Joel, how'd he do? It's like, well, Bobby, you know, uh, he did really good, but I have some other people to listen to. And and, uh, she was like, Joel, we're leaving tomorrow. Can he do the gig? He's like, oh, yeah, he could do the gig. She's like, you've got the gig. Be here tomorrow at 7 o'clock. She was the one that basically hired me. Oh, my Bobby gosh. Bobby wow. God bless her. It's, yeah. it's her way of saying it. It's not being so picky. And yeah, just, it's like, it's listen, drummer. Yeah, if, he's here, if he's here for five hours, when are you going to listen to somebody else? Right, yeah. yeah. So that was great. And they, they were. Man, uh, they're like family to me. Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. When my wife and I you know, had our first son, and Bobby and Joel would go to these <laughs> – they would go to these yard sales in Franklin. They buy all these baby clothes for us. Oh, we did. Yeah, they were just great. They're so, I mean, to this day, they're like, they're like just my family. Does Joel Sonia still? Oh perform? yeah, does he still play? Oh, he's awesome. He's incredible. Wow. And uh, being a Cajun kind of thing, uh, there's a lot of that two four kind of. Right? Yeah, yeah, that extra two bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he lives back in Louisiana now. He lives in, uh, um, gosh, um, the Baton Rouge area. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. I can't remember. I'm I'm probably saying probably misquoting where he lives, but but yeah, yeah, he still oh, he still cool. works. Yeah, that's he's neat. a legend. And so I'm going to go way 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 back to the beginning of when you first like had the thoughts of playing as a drummer. Mm-hmm. Was there a moment in your uh, early like teens or something like that uh, where? that epiphany happened where you, you looked at a drum kit or some, you saw somebody playing or you sat down on a drum kit and went, oh my God, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, I want to hear about that. Um, well, first, before the epiphany thing happened, I I, uh, I grew up in a family that everyone loved music. Everybody had their 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 own kind of taste in music. And, and we lived on a rural road in upstate New York, and we didn't have cable TV. It was right. just two, three, five, and nine. Those were the channels. Right, yeah, I remember and that. And sometimes 
uh, Channel 24, which was PBS. I know. Isn't it weird back in those days, everybody saw the same shows? Yeah. So it wasn't like, hey, did you see uh, Stranger Things? Or the uh-huh. Oh, I don't, you know, back no. then it was like, did you see Gilligan's Island? Oh, yeah, of, of course, course I did. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so when we weren't playing um, sports, when we would come home from school, everybody would just go to their room and play their music or do their homework until Gilligan's Island or, right. or Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley came out. Right. So um, there was that. Everybody, we were always listening to records, you know, um, and my parents had some cool stuff that they listened to that they brought into the house from where, you know, when they grew up. Uh, and I had an uncle, my mother's youngest uh, brother who was i think he's like seven years older than me uh he was into great music and i would always hang out with him when we would go to my grandmother's house and he got me into like steely dan and 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 uh, uh jethro tull and who had else? you played drums at this point yeah. i didn't but i would just really he just listened to some really yeah. exceptional music um what what else you know rush genesis he was a huge genesis fan um elton john uh so I was exposed to a lot of really cool music uh, above and beyond of just what was on the radio, you know. Right. And then when I got into high uh, uh, elementary school, I you know started playing drums in concert band, and I I had some natural ability. I just had the coordination to be able to you know play two and four, yeah. and then you knew eight. where the kick drum yeah. was, and you knew where the snare. But it was in so I did I started that in 1980 in 1984 my uncle same guy his name was Joe Joe Dwyer he took me to see David Gilmore uh, guitar player from from yeah, Pink Floyd from Pink Floyd at the Landmark Theater in so he Syracuse. was doing a solo thing at the time yeah uh, he put out a uh, that was his second solo album it was called About Face okay and I went to that show at Chris Slade bald-headed drummer that right. played with ACDC, with ACDC yeah. and also played before, with The yeah. Firm and yeah. and uh, he was playing drums. I'll be dang. And I remember watching that show being blown away and I thought he had a white pearl kit but I believe it was a white premier kit. Now looking yeah. back, now you know we have yeah. the internet I was able to go back and look at pictures but I was just absolutely enamored. Did I was, he play like the way he plays with ACDC with the, the, the sort of power and uh, did he play with David Gilmore yeah. that way too? Yeah, and I think I, there was a lot of power, but I think there was a little bit more finesse because Gilmore's right. his albums, music is a yeah. little more mellow. And um, yeah, it was it was a it was life changing moment. Yeah. It was like I saw that and I thought that is the coolest thing in the world. That's what I want to do. I want to do that. So yeah. interestingly enough, the next day I went out to the record store and I bought that album. Jeff Picaro played drums on oh, that. Oh, dang. Yeah. Jeff Picaro on, on drums and Pino Palladino on wow. bass. So that was that was the first time I started seeing Picaro's name. Yeah. You know, I had seen him on Toto albums and I had yeah. seen pictures of him with Toto. So I thought, well, he's a band guy. But then I started seeing him on the Gilmore album. Al Records. And, and Michael McDonald yeah. Records oh, God, and Michael yeah. Jackson. I was like, mm-hmm. well, what is this? I mean, this guy plays on everybody else's record and he's in a band. You know, yeah. I never knew that there was a thing called a session guy, yeah, you know, right. being, being that young. But, yeah, 84, David Gilmore, About Face Tour. Landmark. That night changed your whole life, right? That was the bug. The bug bit me that night. And I was yeah. like that's I what i gotta do i know that feeling yeah, yeah. it was amazing it that's was really cool. and so from that point you're just like a single-minded like i don't care you know I what was, kind of music it is i'm gonna play drums yeah i i was 
kind of involved with a lot of different things in school. Like, you know, I was I was into athletics mm-hmm. and I was like a class president and uh, relatively a popular popular kid. And, and I was also, you know, I was in, involved in all the extracurricular music activities, but I wasn't overly serious. Yeah. I did them just to be able to play the drum set. Yeah. You know, I played concert bands so I could be in Dixieland band or jazz band and play kit. Um, but I wasn't overly focused um, until I went. I went to college for a year from for something completely different. Uh, I went to be something to do with sports medicine mm-hmm. or athletic training. I was you know into the yeah. jock thing, and after a year of college. I was playing in a rock band at a different university. Yeah. After college for a year, I figured, you know, I think maybe I'm not supposed to do this. I think I'm yeah. supposed to play music. Yeah. So I kind of did uh, did a 180 and refocused myself. And, and so I started studying with these great yeah. drummers around yeah. the, in Syracuse area and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So I got a little bit of a late start. I wasn't I wasn't overly focused until probably you know, 19, 20 years old. Yeah. Now, when you studied with those drummers, they were teaching you to read and all that stuff. Yep. And yeah, I, I, I learned how to read a, a bit, you know, in public school. But again, I didn't take it so serious that, you know, my reading chops weren't really together. Yeah. Um, and uh, styles, different styles. <laughs> this will be funny. And, and I know I know this guy will listen to this. Uh, John Dixon. John Dixon. So okay. I, John I, Dixon, I, yeah, great guy. I love this guy, and, and I always give him credit. And he always listens to these things. He's like, man, you, you, you know, you mentioned my name again. Thanks, but, but I vividly remember this. So I studied with him uh, two different times um, in my my early years, um, and I only studied with him briefly. And maybe about two or three years late years later when i decided i was going to eventually move to nashville i got a hold of him and i said john this is what i want to do or mr dick his name was mr dixon yeah mr. john dixon. now but but i said you know I, i'm thinking about doing this and i really would like to maybe get together with you and maybe you could help me get my act together so so you know we're talking on the phone he agrees and i go over to his place and and we sit down and we're and we start talking about what i want to do he goes you 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 want to move to nashville and i said yeah he goes you you want to move to nashville the way that you play now the way that you you don't read real well but you want to do that and i said yeah he goes you know that you're going to get your ass handed to you don't you and I looked at him and I said, really? He goes, Dave, yeah. Come on, everybody that moves to Nashville is the best of the best. Right. I'm just being honest with you. He goes, now, I don't want to be your teacher. I can be your coach. But it's pretty much going to come down to what you are willing to do to be prepared to go there. Because yeah. if you go there now, it's not going to, be, it's not going to end well. Yeah. You know? And I was... Wow. I was a little set back, but he was totally honest yeah. because I'll tell you, fast forward five years, I didn't, from that point on, I actually moved to Florida first. Right. And I played and I studied down there with some guys, a, a great drummer named Dave Reinhardt, mm-hmm. amazing drummer, and another guy named Kenny Suarez, who was a you know great Latin player. I studied with them too. And uh, I worked on my reading uh, somewhat, but not like... Uh, somebody at North Texas State or Berkeley, right. as far as the reading is concerned. Read yeah. Solos and things like that. I moved to Nashville, 
six years after that conversation with John, and I still got my ass handed oh, to man. me. You know how it is. I mean, right. I'm, I met you at the at the turf. The turf. Remember the turf? What was the turf? It was a it was that club downtown next to the Music City Lounge. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who's the bass player I was playing with? The guy from Oklahoma, a friend of yours. Oh, uh, Cactus. Uh, I mean, well, I, I, I nicked um, Kurt Stanley. Kurt Stanley. That's Kurt how Stanley. you and I met. From really, Kurt. is that yeah, right? Yeah. Kurt, Kurt, Kurt and I, I were playing. That, yeah. Turf. Kurt. Kurt and I was playing playing together. Um, okay. I, the thing I remember about that place that I have not forgot. I never forgot it. Was that you guys were playing stuff, country songs, just like mm-hmm. you would, and I was sitting there listening, drinking a beer, and. Um, and you guys go, hey, we're going to take a short break, uh, and we'll be right back. And you're like, do, 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 da, 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 da. Uh, You started playing Led Zeppelin, like, for your break song. Yeah. Like you had a break song. Is that the one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember yeah. that? Yeah, heck yeah. And, and Jerry Preva was the drummer that usually had that gig. Yeah. And I met Jerry out on the road before I moved to Nashville, and he you know, used to let me sub for him down there. Yeah. But that's where you and I, Kurt Stanley, right. man. Yeah. yeah. Kurt Stanley. Yeah. yeah. I, I stay in touch with him now. Uh, Great now dude, man. Great dude. I, I Still in Oklahoma. Guy. Yeah. Yeah, he was very, very gracious when I first moved to town. That's cool. Yeah. 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 He and I were like best buds for a while. We, he taught me how to bass fish. No kidding. And all that stuff, because I didn't know how to do it. I was just like, kind of like, you put a worm on a hook, you know. And uh, he, <laughs> no, 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 we got to go to Walmart, get this power bait. We got to get this certain kind of hook. And you got to go out. We'd go out in my canoe here. When he moved to Nashville for a little while, Kurt and I would go out in my canoe and uh, bass fish at night. Oh wow! You know, and I mean, we were just we were catching fish for, for once in my life. I was finally catching bass. So fish. You, you are you big in big into I, fishing? I'm not as big as some like of the pros and all that, but I have a nice boat and I live on the water and everything. Oh, that dude, says well, you anything, need to you, know? you need to connect with Austin Cucuruto. Oh really? Austin plays drums for the Oak Ridge Boys. He came in oh, okay. after I left, and he's he, a big bass fisherman. Oh dude, he's just all about. I gotta fishing. call Scotty Scotty Simpson yeah. back and say, hey, you gotta hook me up with. Well, he plays drums so he can go fish. Right? Yeah, I know people like <laughs> so that. He yeah. can buy stuff to go fish exactly. and buy new poles and stuff like that yeah yeah he'd be a good guy you guys won't talk about drums all right okay. <laughs> you'll be sitting there talk talking about fishing, about fishing. yeah yeah well, cool so uh but uh so anyway yeah um nashville and he said uh you did you stay here and you just kind of did it out? absolutely yeah. you know it was one of those things where I, I realized right away that uh a lot of what i was doing like you know when i was in florida i was i was listening to a lot of david garibaldi Tower Power and listening wow. to Dave Weckl and Picaro, of course, and yeah. Rick Morata and practicing and, a lot. Yeah, I mean, and know, playing, right? so, playing a lot yeah. to records. And, uh, you know, I got the Dave Weckl instructional DVDs and the Dennis Chamber one. So, you know, yeah. I was I was practicing a lot of the highbrow stuff mm-hmm. uh, and, and I tried to emulate that that kind yeah. of playing. Um, but I also was always just a huge Picaro fan. So I was constantly playing along with you know, Boss Gags records and, and stuff that he did with Steely yeah. Dan and Toto and all and all that. The guys that really grooved heavy and that kind of music were the guys that I really were, I was most attracted to, like, you yeah. know, Jim Keltner and Jim Gordon and, like uh, you know, Harvey Mason, yeah. uh, uh, you know, Gad yeah. and Garibaldi. So, you know, those were my guys. And so when I moved to Nashville, uh, my playing was a little busy. A little too busy, yeah. you know, and I, I loved I loved some of the feel that was going on, you know, that Richie Hayward sort of like uh, subdivisions underneath just the two and yeah. four, you know, I love that kind yeah. of feel, but but I was playing all those subdivisions. I was a little yeah. too noty, and I remember being at the turf, and I can't remember the guy's name. 
uh, he was the the steel player, and he also owned the bar. Okay. You right. know, so I'm playing one night, and you know, a lot of those guys were calling off country songs. I had no idea what they were, and I remember one time he it, he was set up right next to my hi hat, and he looked at me and goes, "You know what? If you would learn to shut up, you'd be a really good drummer." <laughs> and I looked at him. I'm like, and I looked at him, and he goes, "Your hi hat's way too busy, bro." He yeah. goes, just play simple. Just keep good time. Just play simple. <laughs> and I thought, wow, either he's a jackass. It's like, I spent years studying with all these masters yeah. so I could play cool things. You but know? he was he was totally right. He was just totally yeah. right, you know. Um, and it was a humbling, it was definitely a humbling time, you know. Uh, uh, especially, you know, going in and doing sessions. There was so much more session work back then. Yeah. So it, it wasn't... it. I think I was here maybe a month, two months, and I started yeah. getting some session calls, and my reading was terrible. And you got to learn the number system. Yeah, and Nashville. I was just, like, you know. That was my big crutch. Yeah. The number system. It's like, what does that diamond thing mean? What's yeah. the football? Absolutely. What is that? <laughs> you know, and it's not as difficult as, is. it's not as difficult as, it's more intimidating than it is hard to learn. Yeah, right. You know, um, but I just sort of made the commitment to stay and, and learn and, and be humble. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to go back to Florida. I didn't want to go back to New York. You know, yeah. I was set on staying here and, and Did making Did you ever meet Chuck that plays with Terry Clark? Chuck Fields. Yeah, Chuck Fields. Great I had him guy. on a podcast one time, and he was telling me about going back to that keep good time thing. He had the same experience. He was playing with the jazz guy, mm-hmm. and he was all jazz, you know, and he was like, yeah, just like real young. He was like 19, and he was just mm-hmm. playing all just like all these notes and trying to be like, I'm in a jazz band. I'm playing all these things. Mm-hmm. And finally, the saxophone player just stopped. He told me this story. He just stopped and looked back at him in the middle of a song and said, hey, kid, just keep time, man. <laughs> That's great. And Chuck was kind of like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. But somebody had to do yeah. it, right? Somebody and and thank, it, yeah. thank goodness somebody did it, yeah. you know, and got my attention and got his attention. You know, it's only going to be yeah. so long before. And I, I know for a fact there were situations that I was in because I played too busy or I or, or, or whatever skill set that I didn't have down yeah. lost me an opportunity, yeah. you know, until somebody had the uh, wherewithal or at least a, a little bit of belief in me enough to yeah. say, hey, dude, look, it, just do this. If he simplifies everything down a little bit, he'd be a great drummer. Yeah. That kind of thing. And that's know, basically right? what he, what he yeah. said to me that night. And, and it had been told to me a few yeah. times. You know, it's one of those things you got to lose your ego and mm-hmm. and swallow your yeah. pride and just just be a sponge and, and yeah. want to learn. Yeah. You know, I think we learn as drummers, as pro drummers that have been doing this for as long as we have. One thing we learn at some point is that when you create a good pocket, the band feels good. If they Absolutely. feel good while you're playing and you produce this, it's like building a, a, a good foundation mm-hmm. for a building, for a house. Mm-hmm. Without that good foundation, what we call a pocket, then the whole house is going to kind of tilt and kind of not be a comfortable place. But if you build that comfortable foundation for the band mm-hmm. and they feel good, then you've got the gig. Well, I, I also, yeah, that's, that's absolutely 100% true. And I think that once you find groove in your playing yeah and you understand what that feels like to be in the pocket and really understanding what a good groove feels like and hold it there and keep that it becomes infectious and you know i've had people ask me it's like well how do you learn groove and it's it's one of those debatable conversations and and i think groove finds you 
Yeah. You know, I don't think you can learn groove. You can learn all the elements to allow you to groove. You know, yeah. good time, good feel, being able to understand time feel. Where am I going to place this behind the beat, in the middle of yeah. the beat? You know, am I going to exactly. play with a little bit more drive, like a controlled urgency, like Kenny Arnoff? How am I going to yeah. – where, where is the quarter note pulse? Where do right. you want to feel this? Once you have a command of time and understand yeah. how the it can be – nuances and things yeah, like you that. Can, yeah, it can be elastic. Yeah. Once you understand that, those are elements that will allow you to be a better groove player – but I think ultimately, the groove finds us. Yeah, right. You know, there was there was a moment I remember playing with some guys on stage, and there was a thing that happened. Magic, I call it yeah. magic. Yeah, yeah. There was the a thing happened. the first time it ever happened, and and it wasn't anything extra special, but it was just grooving. Yeah. And I remember the guys all turned around, and and we had been playing together. It was a, a guy named Christian Hastings, blues guitar player. Yeah. And bass player named Dave Benignus or Dave Wilson. He goes by. And we were just grooving along at Bourbon Street down here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, you know, early 30s. You know, yeah. it was wasn't like I was in my 20s. I was I was playing yeah. in my 20s, but it really happened. There was a magic that happened that night, and everybody turned around and looked at me and said, "What the hell just happened?" And I'm like, "I don't know." So yeah. there was you a taste. Yeah, yeah that, that it, was, it was a special thing. So. I've always noticed those things happening when you're kind of young and you, you're, the band you're in is kind of trying to make its way up. And all of a sudden you get the opportunity to play in front of like thousands of people. Like so-and-so canceled and they need this, they need somebody to fill this spot or whatever. And so you're kind of like, okay. So you get up on stage or your label you're with says, hey, we're going to introduce your you guys to at fanfare or at whatever and you get the opportunity to play in front of thousands of people where you really hadn't done that before you've kind of played clubs and things Mm -hmm. and then everybody's focus and everybody's attention and everybody's uh, energy is energy crazy everyone's together it's like this kind of laser uh focus that goes on Mm -hmm. and after you get done with that 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 gig whatever it was two or three songs that you're filling in for somebody or opening for somebody and then you walk off stage and you're like what just happened yeah and, it, and of course it goes by in a lightning sure bolt, absolutely you know? yeah it's a special thing man you know music is a just a, a form of spiritual communication yeah and when you're all locked in and there's a synergy it's it's special yeah. no dance floor everybody's eyes are on you and yeah. it's just kind of this hyper focus i love moments like that yeah it's great. live tv can be like that when you're not like completely nervous and looking down there and there's your front row is like George Strait, Reba McIntyre, yeah. Shania Twain, and they're looking up at you like, okay, let's get this over with. Yeah, you guys have, you, <laughs> your, your band has had yeah. a lot of those opportunities. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, That's um, cool. Uh, what was I going to say? Um, so, yeah, you came to Nashville and you, you struggled and stuff like that. And I want to talk about Travis Tritt a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. what? how did that whole, uh, was it through word of mouth? Did you, was he having auditions and mm-hmm. you just were one of the auditioners? Yeah, you know, when I first moved to town, my focus was really just, I, I wanted to be an in-town guy, because back then it was either, you know, you were a touring guy, a road musician, or you were a studio guy. So, you know, I had this dream that I was going to come to town and be the nef- next Jeff Beccaro. Uh At least that's what I wanted to, but, yeah. you know, it made absolutely no sense and made, uh, it really humbled me when I got here and I realized, you know, you can't read the way you need to be able to read so you know i got to work and i and i i worked on those things that uh, i wasn't good at yeah um but you know the whole time was really trying to to see if i could make it in town and i had some success and and then you know for the first five years 
you know, I played with Joel Saunier and did some touring with him. And I played on a few of his records. And then I was working with this guy, Christian Hastings. I played it on one of his records and doing a lot of custom projects. And then when 2000 came around, the guy that was doing my cartage called me up one day and said, you know, uh, you're not going to believe who I saw today in the studio. Well, what I saw today in the studio. And I said, what? I thought maybe Vinnie Caliuta was in town. He goes, well... I went to uh, Sound Emporium and uh, Eddie Bears was using a house kit. And I went to uh, this studio and Lonnie Wilson was doing demos with a house kit. And then I went to this studio and Milton Sledge was doing demos with a house kit. Wow. And I was like, okay, these are all the A guys yeah. that never did demos. All they were doing was record dates. Yeah. And that's when, you know, the business started to change. Yeah, you know, right. the downloading started to occur mm -hmm. and, and and labels started cutting uh production budgets and, yeah. and publishers started cutting their budgets to do demos. And you know, that was my gravy right there. I yeah, was doing right. production uh production accounts for, you know, uh some label people that were just uh, developing artists yeah. and then uh, a lot of the publishing accounts that I had within months yeah. went away. It was a scary time. So, yeah, it was crazy. It was like, you know, the A guys started doing the B work, the mm -hmm. B guys started doing the this C work. This would have been around 2006, 7, 8, that something was, like that. It was right yeah. around 2000. Yeah. Right, oh, right around really? 2000, yeah. yeah. So oh. at least that's when it started to affect me. So, you know, I basically said to my wife you know i think i should try to really make a, 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 a focused adjustment here on maybe trying to get a road gig so i started taking auditions um and by that point having been here for five years i knew a lot of people that had gigs or knew about yeah. stuff that was going on and i at that year i auditioned for clay davidson new country artist i remember that name yeah i didn't get that i was told i was overqualified <laughs> whatever yeah. that meant i was like okay I, I mean i could play worse if you'd like yeah you know uh and then i auditioned for pam tillis against wow. rich redmond rich got that gig uh, oh yeah i've had him on my podcast yeah, before he was telling rich. me about that yeah i just did his podcast not not too long ago he's a great guy man i always joke with rich i always tell him rich you're so intense you could make a cup of coffee nervous <laughs> that's a good one and he was like i'll take that as a compliment <laughs> yeah i'll take that <laughs> and then i auditioned for trisha yearwood and i oh, wow. lost that to charlie morgan okay. the uh, drummer yeah. for melton john so at that point i was really kind of bummed you know strike three and i was out and i really loved trisha's trisha's music yeah i really that was like great stuff have moving you know once i moved to town that was like one of my top that's jeff percaro level stuff you know yeah, it was just like wanna... really touch yeah. and taste and finesse yeah, and right. just really loved her songs and her and her voice and you know so that was a real heartbreaking uh let down for me because that was like a gig i really wanted yeah. if i could have had a gig so you know, I remember regrouping and I remember praying after that. And I was like, you know, Lord, just keep me positive because obviously these places that I've been, I'm not supposed to be. Right. You know, of course, you close these doors. Just please keep me positive for the one that you want me to be yeah. at, you know, because a lot of times I had seen it in the five years that I had been here. Yeah. You know, people get beat up. And yeah. their attitudes change, and they just, you know, they lose yeah. that that confidence because yeah. of all the rejection you get. It's part of the business, and I didn't want that. You know, I wanted to, you know, keep the joy in my life and keep the joy in my playing. Yeah. You know, so I, I just, I was very um, forthcoming about praying about just yeah. please help keep me keep me focused. Yeah. And not let this beat me. So. 
I was in a session and this uh, steel player that I was uh, working with, uh, Pat Seavers, mm-hmm. Pat had just played on this girl's album, Rebecca Lynn Howard. And uh, it got brought up in the session that I was doing that I had auditioned for Trish and I didn't get it. And he said, hey, man, I didn't know you we were taking auditions. I mean, I, I didn't know you were looking for a road gig. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, something to supplement you know the lack of work I'm yeah, getting in right, town. Lack of sessions. He goes. He goes. Well, you know, um, I can put a word in because I know Trisha's or uh, Rebecca Lynn Howard's looking for a drummer. And sure enough, I got a call from their management, and they didn't even audition me. They I just understand. they just gave, got me, gave me the gig. Oh. And at that gig, I met Brian Henchcliffe. Brian Henchcliffe was a bass player, and Brian had also worked with Michael Peterson. Mm-hmm. Remember okay. Michael Peterson, yeah, the songwriter. Right. Well, Michael had the same management as Travis Tritt, Falcon Goodman. So while we were out on the road with Rebecca Lynn Howard, he got wind that Travis was going to be putting a new band together through the Falcon Goodman management company. And they kind of said, hey, if you'd be interested in kind of putting this all together. Now, what year would this have been? 2000. Like, okay, 2000. 2000. So um, Brian put a big word in for me, and uh, I had also worked with this rock and roll guitar player named Les Dudek. I had played on one of his albums. In fact, I played on one of the albums that he had done with Jeff Picaro. So Jeff yeah. and I both shared an album credit together. And uh, Gary Falcom from that management company knew who Dudek was. He was, he yeah. was from the west coast so that was another in with the management company right so uh i got a call from them saying hey uh, we would be interested in having you audition for, for travis would you like to do you know the 10 o'clock slot I'm like yeah totally in so then i got a call back the next day and they asked look We'll audition you at 10 o'clock, but we're wanting to know if you'd be interested in stay and do the other auditions. I'll do the bass player auditions, do oh, the right. fiddle auditions, okay, do the keyboard yeah. auditions. Essentially That's play, play right with Travis. Yeah. And this was even before yeah. I auditioned. And we'll pay you. We'll basically pay you to audition. I was like, well, yeah, that's a stupid question. Of course I'd do it. So I had an opportunity to play with Travis more than anybody. But, you know, there was a lot of guys like, you know, Mike Kennedy auditioned. Oh, wow. Lee uh-huh. Kelly auditioned. Um, uh, Ian Wallace. You know who Ian Wallace? I don't know that. Ian name. Wallace played with uh, Don Henley. Oh, he wow. He was Don yeah. Henley's drummer. Okay. And uh, who else? Uh, uh, not Brandex, not Brand. No, King Crimson. He played with King Crimson, wow, Inc- a British guy. So he auditioned. He was the last guy that was going to audition. And I thought, well, you know, I, goes that gig. <laughs> I know because I, lo- I lost the gig with Trisha Yearwood to Charlie right. Morgan, who's a British, course, a British right, guy. Yeah. And I'm like, here we go. Another British invasion. In this, huh? this guy's going to steal my gig. <laughs> well, it ended up working out. But the cool thing, and I, and I have to I have to mention this, that so in praying and asking God to, like, just keep me positive, because I knew that. You know, I, I was thinking inside myself, okay, there's got to be something better that you have for me than the Pam Tillis gig or the Trisha Yearwood gig mm-hmm. or the Clay Davidson gig. So it was, in fact, the truth because after 2000, yeah. Trisha let all his her band go. Yeah, right. And she didn't tour for three years. I think I remember that. Uh, Pam 
toured with that same band for two years and let everybody go. And Clay Davidson, nobody knows who he is anymore. Yeah, right. And I had the Travis gig for nine years. Yeah, that was meant to be, man. Yeah, and it was, was a great. It God was, a great was, was saving yeah. something for you. And yeah, so just, just, it's not your time yet. Just yeah, hang on. And and, yeah. and that was one of those things where I, I had to just, you know, pray for patience, pray for perseverance, and just believe mm-hmm. that okay, I'm not supposed to be at those places. And that's happened to me several times in yeah. in my career where. You know, I have to just realize that sometimes you just have to let go, get out of your way. You know, if there's a thing called destiny and you believe it, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. those things will occur when they're supposed to occur. Yeah. It doesn't mean that we don't practice and, t- and take all the 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 things that we do, uh, preparation and, and continuous uh, work to get better. Yeah, you know, right. it doesn't mean, well, God's going to open the door for me. I'm going to go make a sandwich and watch TV. Yeah. You know, there are no cheat codes. You can't yeah. go to YouTube right. and b- download something. Hard work is what yeah. gets you in. That's right. Yeah. You know, and hard work is what keeps you there. Yeah. You still and have that's to what do the work. People that have stayed around and been doing it for a long time, that's the kind of filter that lesser, I don't want to say lesser drummers, but people that don't have the patience that we have mm-hmm. would have just gone on and said, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go to my fallback. I'm going to be an insurance company you know, it, person and, it, and or that's I'm going to work at there's a bank no, or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's if that's what yeah. they they want to do. And and I just always looked at it was, you know, I don't have a fallback plan. This is what yeah. I'm called to do. Exactly. You know, I, and I read, a, I was reading a book about, uh, about surviving or making it in the new music industry with the streaming and all this stuff and uh one of the things it said in the very beginning of the book is don't have a fallback mm-hmm. do not have a fallback because if you do you're just going to fall back on it and yeah. you're not going to make it as a musician you whatever know? not to say that nobody ever has it's just saying that's their advice mm-hmm. don't have a fallback because just even if you're teaching or you're recording stuff for people's youtube channel or whatever you're mm-hmm. if you can make money as a musician you're you're yeah you're a professional you know, and if and you, you have other other interests in the arts or something that you love to do there's nothing wrong with having that yeah, but right. but you know i i was always i don't know i i remember having people move to town and they say well you know i'm here i'm going to give it five years you know they say it's a five-year town so after five years i'm going to figure out what i'm going to do and when people ask me that question i would say i never gave it uh, a time frame i moved here and this is where i felt like i was called to be so i was staying and the question is also after five years what that, well, th- and th- that you're on tour with a big act or what, what's your gauge yeah. of like success yeah. at yeah. that point? So I've exactly. had a girl on my podcast a few weeks ago, Kelly, Kelly Bam Bam is her name. Yeah, Bamberger. You know, She's yeah. great. Great and drummer. And she is a great drummer and awesome. she plays down on Broadway. Mm-hmm. That's her gig. That's her thing. She's and great. Man. To her, that is all she wants. She doesn't want to go. She could go on tour mm-hmm. with these big bands and stuff like that. She could probably be the drummer for Shania Twain if she Absolutely. wanted to. Absolutely. She, she you know, plays her butt off. Yeah, and but she doesn't want that. She wants to play in Nashville. She wants a steady gig. She wants every day. Yeah. Sometimes she works in the morning down there playing country yeah. music in the morning. It's incredible. And, uh, I mean, so, compared to what it was like when we moved to town right you know that's i mean there's people just making a great living and man what's wrong with that i have absolutely no problem i'll play down there if i get called by people that i know sure i just love to play it's great it's a blast yeah so i I guess my question is like after five years some people say i'll give it five years and like what in five years like that you're 
played on an album or that you are touring with somebody or and how do you judge who how high the person you're touring with is you know sure. how many millions are you know what so it's kind of a it's, general term like five years of what five years trying yeah, it and if, if, if I, I don't, don't get something if I don't get some sort of break then, yeah. then or if what? I'm not happy with what I'm doing or something yeah. like whatever well, then, yeah. then moves to some other some other town and then start over I don't, I yeah, don't know right you know but I never looked at it that way. But, you know, there, there was those people that said, yeah, you know, Nashville's kind of a five-year town to really yeah. get established. And, you know, back then it probably was, yeah. you know. I don't even know if there's even a, a gauge that yeah. people use now when you move to town. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I guess how long your sanity can last. Right? Yeah, you know, whatever, I mean, how, you know, what, whatever goals that you had, you know, put forth on yourself, if you were able yeah. to attain them under a certain period of time then great but yeah. you know i just love the community you know if yeah. i'd stopped playing altogether i'd still live here yeah both my boys my wife were all you know yeah been here so tell me about some of the years with travis uh, uh did, did you guys treat i guess you toured all over the world and yeah yeah, yeah. we did did some uso stuff uh, i remember we played in germany uh switzerland um, I got him at a good time. You know, Scotty Simpson and I were yeah. both with him together. Right. So that was in 2000. He had he had a new deal with uh, with CBS. So yeah, prior that. to that, he was on Warner. So um, had a lot of label support and had hits. You know, number ones. And so we did all the TV. We did Jay Leno twice, and uh, I think it was it, back then it was the Greg Kinnear show. We did wow. the Best Damn Sports Show with Tom Arnold, who's yeah. a drummer, who actually got oh, up and wow, played on my cool. kid. Really? Is that right? Yeah, it's a good thing he got into acting because he's not a good drummer. Oh, I, I told him that and he laughed. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, we did all the award shows, ACMs and CMAs, and, and that was that was cool. Yeah. We, we had a good time, you know. Um, I'm sure we we saw you guys on the road when you guys were oh, doing yeah. your thing Another, a bunch of times. Done a bunch of outdoor shows and yeah. big festivals and things. Yeah, so that was a good run. Nine years was a great run. And uh, how many of those nine years did he come out in the road case? Did he? Did he? That was after. I never actually saw that, but I heard about it. Yeah, that was totally before me. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, so I he see. didn't do yeah. any of that stuff. You know, he had a motorcycle that he'd drive up on stage. That was that was before <laughs> wow. me too. Yeah. So it was. Uh, you know, we still had a pretty decent stage set up and some good lights, but that big production thing. You know, with yeah. the motorcycle in the in the, uh, wow. the road case, yeah, that was. I heard stories about that, but yeah, that wasn't the case with us. I heard a story about the road case where somebody played a joke on him and mixed the road cases up or something, so they didn't know which one he was in or yeah. something like that. I heard that. And too. He ended up putting the wrong one on stage. Yeah. Yep. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I heard the same. That thing. happened. Yeah. Yep. Pretty funny. Man, but Travis, you know, he has got the most soulful voice I've ever heard. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Back God. then, he was amazing, yeah. and then, still, you know, I've still heard heard uh, him sing and like any more the song any more just sends chills up my spine. Yeah, you know? and that from a drummer standpoint, that's a that's a slow groove, man. Mm-hmm. That's just like that's almost keeping time with that. It's just like you got to be you got to be just like a not a metronome, but I mean you got to be just you got to find that groove in there. Yeah, I would say. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I. I've been really lucky to play with some really great vocalists. Now, I'm I'm working with Joe Nichols now. Oh, cool! And Joe, man, sings his his tail off. Yeah, he's a great singer. Yeah, he's really definitely got that uh, that hag. Yeah, really country. Hag. Yeah, really yeah, country. And really, man, he he really has his own thing. Yeah, you know? it's it's he's not bro country. Um, he has he has you know a whole contemporary country vibe. 
you know, but yeah. honors his traditional roots. Yeah. So he's he's real fantastic. Uh, you know, working with Lee Greenwood, he's another guy that sings so good. Wow. T. Graham Brown is another guy that I I've, I've always with. been a fan of T. Graham Dude, Brown. That guy like when he had his deal in the so bad. 80s in the late 80s or whenever it was. Well, I saw him play at Cowboys in Dallas or. I was with Canyon at the time. Oh wow! No yeah, kidding. Yeah. Wow, that's a that's back. Yeah, that's like 89, 88, 89, 90. Something so like that. Canyon was around. What was the band that Scotty was in? Scotty Simpson was in. What was it called? Oh oh, um, he was in uh, Stallion. 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 Yeah, just course. so you guys were like in the yeah. same kind we of were, competing yeah. bands. That's yeah. right. Because I remember him. One time we were talking. One time he was like, "I was in Stallion. You remember Keith Rainwater from from Lone Star?" He goes, "Yeah, he was in this band called Canyon." I'm like, "Oh yeah. crap." Yeah, yeah, we that talked was about that, that when Ed Scotty on the podcast. Yeah. We talked about Stallion and all that. Yeah, the Stallion days. Those, those that you know, the big club circuit down mm-hmm. in Texas, which is still incredible. Yeah. Well, the, in the early '90s, one of the reasons I'm here and why a lot of Lone Star formed is because that whole live band industry in Dallas kind of dried up in the early '90s when the club started hiring DJs, uh, and they realized that they don't have to hire a six-piece or seven-piece band. You could just hire a DJ, one person, and they keep that dance floor full and keep people drinking and that kind of thing. And so a lot of those clubs kind of – they were still around a little bit, but not enough for some of the guys to make a living. So that's when a lot of guys like Ty Herndon and uh, Trace Atkins and people like that, we all just kind of migrated up here because that's to try to get a record deal or try to play with a touring band or sure. whatever. You know. And, well, that's uh, interesting. So, yeah, a lot of the guys in Lone Star had moved here all separately kind of. And then just kind of put this little band together and played at the Wild Horse Saloon. And uh, I remember okay. Kurt Stanley used to, uh, he uh, very he was very, um, what's the right word, appalled to learn that we got the gig at the Wild Horse without auditioning. <laughs> he said, well, everybody has to audition. They wouldn't accept anybody without an audition. They want to hear everybody go, well, they knew Dean. And Dean said, hey, I got a great band. And they said, well, come in and audition. And Dean said, we can't. We're on the road playing i mean we're actually making a living at on the road playing wow. and uh they said all right if you say it's good then i i guess it's good so we ended up being like almost the house band there pretty That's much wild man at the I wild did, horse i did some work with richie here not too long ago with the front men oh right okay yeah went out and uh, subbed for matt kraus on a few shows and those guys are great, man. That's a that's a fun. And you know, the interesting thing was when you know I, I had made posts on on social media because I was always a huge Restless Heart fan. You know, right. Okay. John Dietrich and and I'd work with all those guys in the studio. Not John, of course, but I've worked with Dave Ennis and and I've worked with some of the other guys and and knew Larry just from the association with the Oak Ridge Boys. Okay. Right. But you know. Lone Star being a band and Little Texas being a band and then of course Restless Heart being a yeah. band you never have a chance to play any of those songs because those yeah. guys it's a band right so when I started playing those those songs with those guys I was like man this is pretty cool you know to be able to actually play this stuff yeah because you know you you were the drummer from Lone Star yeah. how, how do you ever play with Lone Star you don't right. because you're a part of a band <laughs> yeah so that was really cool yeah to be able to play some of those parts and man I, you know what I, I learned walking in memphis from yeah. your live show right that was great dude oh thanks i was, I was you know watching richie sort of watch your foot so mm-hmm. you guys all stayed together yeah right because you know richie can kind of get a little crazy <laughs> right yeah richie i love you but you know if you're listening <laughs> yeah. to this which you probably aren't and you probably won't care but yeah but yeah well sometimes well richie would because that song starts on piano mm-hmm. and without any click or anything and it, you know back then we had some click on some songs and 
and some songs like Memphis we didn't have click on because it came in and out a mm-hmm. lot. And it had that one segue part exactly, where it's sort yeah. of like, yeah. And so now when we play, we have click on it, but it's all timed out and everything with yeah, little cues. Because mm-hmm. um, we have video screens that, we, that yeah. we play content and stuff like that. So, But back then when we didn't have click, Richie would play that thing so dogged fast. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Chick, 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 you know, and like, yeah, he has a tendency to kind of step on stuff. Yeah. And, uh, but so, Mr. Mom was another cool tune, oh, yeah, dude. I mean, I know people think that's hokey, man, but that's a, such a cool yeah. swing thing, man. Yeah. We do this really cool thing now where we re-recorded it. We went in the studio and re-recorded mm-hmm. it. We do this really cool thing in the beginning. It's like uh, Michael came up with this cool guitar riff, and it's kind of the halftime thing. Mm-hmm. He goes, do 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 that's cool yeah you know we do this kind of halftime funky mm-hmm. thing and we do a little breakdown in the middle uh where the breakdown of the song he sings the chorus but it's like real down and then yeah. it builds back up again we do that halftime thing there too and oh, then cool. at the end so we do it three times in the song where we do that little you know yeah that's cool you guys had some huge songs dude you played on oh, some thank you. you played on some huge Huge songs. Was that that one song that was the song of the of the decade? Amazed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's not that's a, a good bad thing to have on your resume. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. By the way, I played on the song of the decade. I wish I'd written it. You know. I wish yeah, I'd written it. And I this is I a good lesson too. for young people that are starting out and all this. If you can, if you can somehow get in the room or hone your skill as a songwriter, mm-hmm. you won't regret it because. No. That's where the wealth is, really. That's you know, mailbox money. Yeah, that's yeah. big mailbox money. And houses, you know, cars. Yeah, and if you're part of a band, sometimes I mean, I don't know this to be verbatim as far as true, but I heard a story one time that uh, with Toto, and I could be completely wrong, and I, and I should maybe not even mention this, but I heard that because of all those guys understanding the. The wealth in the writing. Yeah, the publishing. and Yeah, the, that they would split a percentage. Yeah, that's what Van Halen did as well. Yeah, they took like a 10%. Yeah, like, you know, if somebody wrote a song, they would take a 10% or 20%, yeah. and they would split that amongst each guy in the band. Yeah. So if a guy came in with a song that he co-wrote with another person, he would take whatever his portion was, and yeah. he would divide that up. So at least everybody's going to get a little piece of the pie. Otherwise, it yeah. was just basically a David Page band. Right, yeah. David wrote all you know a lot of those big songs. Yeah. Not all of them, but... Well, you know. the way our management explained it to us in the beginning when we first Lone Star, we're first getting to be a band, and we're writing up all the agreements and things like that, you have to... They said that what happens a lot of times is that... A band will have a songwriter or two, like the, let's just say the lead singer and the lead guitar player. They mm-hmm. both write a lot. Like in um, uh, Journey. Journey or um, uh, Walk This Way. Um, oh, Steven Tyler yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and um, Joe Perry. Yeah. Air, 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 um, I'm not trying to say. Uh, yeah, yeah. Those guys. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Aerosmith. God, Aerosmith. I just couldn't yeah, say Aerosmith. the name. Yeah. Like Aerosmith, you got two main writers and the rest. And then, of course, when they start getting all that mailbox money in for big hits, they don't want to tour. They don't need to tour. Mm-hmm. They don't. They absolutely don't want to, you know. So they want to stay home. And then the rest of the guys that depend on that touring to for their wealth, you know, for houses and cars and things, they kind of resent the fact that, well, we have to tour because that's how I make my money. And so mm-hmm. th- there has the need to sort of split up. 
the publishing a little bit so mm-hmm. that everybody gets a little bit. Yeah, which is only fair if it yeah. really is a band. Yeah, you know. But there are some people that it, that's not the the case, and that's sometimes the detriment and the demise of a, a good band. Yeah, because of that, when you when you start thinking, in you terms start resenting of, the fact that well, yeah. we need to tour because that's how I make my money, and mm-hmm. I know you're making all this money on publishing, but mm-hmm. so um, they had. Uh, said that you know that, that either everybody needs a publishing deal or everybody needs to write or we need to work out something um, in the you know the setup or something so mm-hmm. that everybody it's fair to everybody but yeah it's it can be a thing you know, for sure. definitely a thing yeah yeah without a doubt for sure for but, sure um, well man I am I've taken up so much of your time and I don't want to take out too much well, thank more you for having me I really thanks appreciate for, it what's uh, what's coming up in the future for you well, I put out this solo CD. Oh, we were going to talk about yeah, that. Put, I'm so sorry. You know, yeah. and, and I didn't put it out Your like solo recent. CD. I put it yeah. out in 2020, so that was right. a terrible thing. It's called um, Shapes. Yeah, Shapes, and it's an instrumental CD that uh, you know it's kind of a kind of a part of my playing that I don't get to do a lot. A good friend of mine, Shane Terrio, yeah, guitar player that uh, plays with uh, Hall and Oates and right. and uh, Daryl's House music director. He he co-produced co-produced it with me and i used some of the guys in the boz skaggs band and then some guys from new orleans but i listened then, to a little bit of one that you did in a clinic or something yeah, where yeah, yeah on yeah. youtube where you're playing one of your songs mm-hmm. from your album in front of some people like at a clinic or something yeah like and that. that's basically real jazzy why, yeah i did that basically to have product to, to sell at clinics and it was you know it's a it's a uh, a labor of love it's kind of music i love playing it's yeah. not it's not like you know over the top chops kind of thing yeah. that's not the kind of player i am it's, it's groove very and tasteful yeah. yeah and there's yeah. there's some places that where I, I get to embellish and, and solo a little bit but i'm not you know wow. that's i'm not i'm not that guy but um i love that kind of music so i put that out and um you david know, northrop and it's called shapes yep you could get it on amazon you could get it uh on itunes you can get it directly if you want a physical copy you can get it yep. directly from me on social media instagram okay. david northrop drums uh, on on uh facebook david northrop drums um my website is not up right now. Are you doing any more shows? Just you, your for, to support your your uh, album, like your no, solo shows. I'm going to be doing some some more drum clinics, but I don't have anything on the books. At least not in Nashville. I've done a few up in New York. Yeah, you know. Well, um, when you do one in Nashville, uh, will you please let me know? Yeah, I absolutely. Come to the, I want to yeah. come. Yeah, I'd love to have you out. Absolutely, and yeah. you could plug it. Regardless, plug, of, absolutely. Yeah. Regardless of who you're you're interviewing at the time, <laughs> yeah. I can say, "Where are you going tonight? I'm going to go see David Northrup at the so and so, yeah, Forks Drum Closet. He's yeah. doing a clinic or whatever, yeah, something like that. Yeah, I think awesome, man. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pop this in my uh, CD player and check it out. And yeah, dude, it's gonna well, be my new jam. It. Yeah, well, thank you for for having me, man. Absolutely, said, you know, it's been a long time. And, yeah, it has and been. when you speak with Kurt. Tell him that you know Chris his name Stanley, got yeah. yeah he got I his will. name got brought up. I haven't I seen will. him in twenty five years. At least. I'm gonna call him today and I'm gonna say, guess who I just talked to, and we're gonna talk about it. Dave who? <laughs> yeah, your ears will be burning later. Yeah, that's awesome, dude. Well, this has been Keith Rainwater and David Northrup on Designated Drummer. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.